We're going to Revelation uh, this morning, chapter number 21. my cell phone. You're looking for your cell phone right now? Yeah. Well, why are you looking in the baptismal tank? Well, I uh, found a bag of potato chips in here last time, and that's where my cell phone was last time I lost it. (laughs) How about if I uncover your eyes? You can't see anything like that, can you? No, not very well. Well, what's the deal with all the masks? Oh, you know... You gotta stay safe out there with all this virus stuff going on. I don't want to get sick, you know? I wear all these masks to protect me. And I've been staying home all day, every day, just like the doctors say to do. I don't leave my house, not to check my mail or nothing. I feel really safe. You do? (laughs) Then why are you here today? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm really hungry. That's why I came to church today. You're really hungry. Well, there's something we could do with that. You know, in a way, we're all kind of hungry for something, too, aren't we? There's something about fellowship that uh, we should be hungry for. With all the changes that we've had to go through, we've missed out on opportunity to talk, to see each other face-to-face, especially when this thing started. We had outdoor services and all the rest. I guess there was kind of a hunger there because the Bible does tell us that we're not supposed to forsake the assembling together, as we're called to do, but it's kind of hard to mix all that together in the midst of this. Where does it say to do that? Uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. It it says a lot about uh, our needs, matter of fact, uh, our personal walk with the Lord and, and... we as a body of Christ and our need in order to, to be together and how important that is. And, you know, we can get very comfortable staying at home all by ourselves and never spending time with God's children or, or in his word and such like that. And so I guess we can get hungry, can't we? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I guess you're right, but I didn't come here because I wanted fellowship, although... Now I think that's why I should be coming a long time ago. Actually, I'm really hungry, and I thought you might have some food here. Well, we we really don't have any food here at the church No, today. no, it's okay. You see, since I've been in quarantine, I've not gone grocery shopping or anything. <laughs> I have nothing left to eat, and, well, I like mutton. Mutton? What you do know, you mean by mutton? Sheep. Come on, I know you have some sheep here somewhere. I'll just take one. You won't know they're even missing. Levi, there aren't any sheep here. What you're talking about, these are people. Oh, you mean when I was reading in First Peter 5 and it said the elders should feed the flocks of God which is among you, that, come on, I know you've got sheep here somewhere. Are they among you? Where are they? So it, it's people. He was talking about people. Oh, well, that doesn't sound very appetizing anymore. (laughs) 
Well, I'll tell you what, Levi. I was getting ready to preach a sermon. And if you'll just wait a little while, why don't you come over to our place for lunch and we'll give you something to eat. You mean it? Yeah. I'd love to. Uh, how about that? Let's plan for that, okay? Okay, but preach fast. I'm really hungry. I'll be waiting for you over there, okay? Uh, you got it. <laughs> you never know when Levi might show up. Plus, he's got to clean up the bathtub full time, too. <laughs> Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Part 1. All right? I know. We're still aiming for 22 weeks, which we bypassed that quite a few weeks ago. We're... I don't know what this is, 27 now, 26, it's, it's a number like that. We've been trying, but uh, when you get to chapter, like chapter 21, there are three major themes here that we want to look at and know, and so I don't, I was told to slow down. Wasn't I told that? Somebody said that to me. Can't you stretch this out a little bit? And so I said, okay. So there I've got it. Part one. The first five verses, will you join me as I, I'm going to read you following your scriptures. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he says, Right. For these words are faithful and true. Lord, with your word in front of us today, we do know that your word is true. And it's faithful. We can count on every bit of it. Learn from it. Apply it and live it. And I pray today as we submit ourselves to the study of your word again, for this time we have this morning, I pray that you might do your work in our hearts. Encourage us with passages like we have before us. Remind us again of how important it is to follow you, to trust you, to love you. Lord, we think of our congregation, about half of us here and half of us on on, uh, the computer this morning watching from home. We do pray that you bless our folks uh, even where they are today at home as they meet with us in this way. But we thank you most of all that you are with us. You are with us. And as we have gathered here today, we just sit at your feet. So teach us, Lord. Teach us from your word. Show us what we need to see and what we need to do. And we thank you, Lord, for that. For your faithfulness to us and the truth you give to us. 
We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. (laughs) We're beginning chapter 21 today. It's so fascinating. These last two chapters of Revelation. We've come a long ways studying the book of Revelation. And and, uh, here we have a very descriptive passage. A passage of our future dwelling place. I think we'd like to know what it is. We speak of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I had said in my book, if you haven't read it, we've got copies. Let me know if you want one. Heaven and the Believer. I'm a tour guide who's never been to our destination. And yet that doesn't disqualify me from being able to tell you what God has already explained in his word. And that's all I do. I just tell you what God has said. And I want to be faithful to that. When we discuss the new heaven and the new earth, I can confidently say this. No one has ever been there. Because it's not created yet. It's not created yet. Only God knows exactly what it looks like. He gave us a glimpse of it when he gave John a glimpse of it and told him to write about it. If God had not recorded these, we would not have this information. So we have to believe it's true, right? Trustworthy. I want to state something along this line as we begin here. Because as you know, in the last ten years or even more, books have been written and movies have been uh, produced about those who have died and gone to heaven and came back. And I'm not one to simply try to punch holes in their credibility. But far too often people take experience to be more important than the Word of God. I want to give you a simple test. A simple test. When somebody tells you such a thing, or you read it in a book, or things like that, if the place that they describe as heaven matches chapter 21 or 22, they could not have gone there because it does not exist yet. Understand that? They could not have gone where a place does not exist yet. Experience should always be tested with Scripture. Always. And if it doesn't pass the test, discard it. Now you come into chapter number 21. And I'm going to set before you the timeline, like I've been trying to stay consistent with this all the way through. The first three chapters of Revelation, we referred to the church. It was speaking to the church age where we're living right now. This age will end when Jesus comes for his church, the bride, at the time of the rapture. Yes, I believe firmly in the rapture. I made this point several times, but the rapture is not the second coming of Christ. There are two different events. In the second coming of Christ, he comes to the earth and he comes for judgment. In the rapture, he comes for his bride, and he meets her in the air, the church. And there we go to dwell with him forever. Somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 4, that appears to have taken place, because there is no more reference to the church until we get to the chapters that are before us right now. Chapter 4 through 19, 
it, the chapters describe the horrible seven-year tribulation on this earth. The church will not be here. But it will be an unprecedented time when the Lord pours out his wrath on this world. People say things are tough right now. There are a series of judgments, three of them, with seven judgments inside of each of those judgments, and they intensify as they come. We spent a lot of weeks on that, didn't we? It was starting to weigh heavy on us. What a wonderful time to have COVID and everything else and talk about the tribulation for four months. It was like, whoo, that's tough stuff. But in that tribulation period, much is said about the sinfulness of mankind. Much is said about the wickedness of the kingdom of the Antichrist. The martyrs of our own brothers and sisters in the faith. We've read of all that. There are terrible chapters, 4 through 19. A lot of that is really, really ugly stuff. Chapter 19 highlights, though, the culmination of God's wrath against this earth. And what is that? Jesus Christ comes again. That is the ultimate of the wrath. As we read in chapter 19, the second coming of Christ, when he comes to punish the Antichrist and the false prophet and the armies of Armageddon, there will also be a time when he rescues Israel and they finally turn their hearts to the Lord. Finally. That will take place as we talked about some of these things in chapter 19 at the second coming of Christ. And the church will come with Jesus when he comes at that time because he promised, where I am, there you will also be. Chapter 20. We began what is understood as the millennial reign of Christ. 1,000 literal years, physical years of Christ on this earth ruling. And he will reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. Satan will be bound and inactive. The Old Testament saints will have been resurrected to enjoy the promises of living in Israel. The tribulational saints would have been re resurrected as well. We saw that in that chapter. The church will be there as Jesus promised. Where I am, there you will be also. I want you to have that as a motto for your life, okay? I'm going to keep saying it until you get it. When we go to be with him, we stay with him. Wherever he goes, we go. If he comes down to the earth, we come down to the earth. If he stays for a thousand years, we stay for a thousand years. If the earth and the heaven is destroyed, guess where we are? With Jesus. Make you feel better about that? Because he promised, where I am, there you will also be. The millennial era will end with the release of Satan and his deception of the world, bringing them to fight a pointless battle against the Lord. And Satan is then defeated. His armies are destroyed. He is sent to the lake of fire, never to tempt or destroy again. I love that chapter. The final scene of chapter number 20 involved the destruction of the present earth and heaven and the great white throne judgment from which all unbelievers, all of them, from beginning of man to the end of the millennial reign, will stand before the Lord, will be judged and sentenced to a forever punishment in the lake of fire. 
That's where we ended. Chapter number 20. Forever punishment in the lake of fire. There are two things that are different. Hell and the lake of fire are different. Not so much in the intensity of the suffering there, the torment that goes on. Hell is temporary. It's a place where an unbeliever would go right now if he should die or she should die. And it's been that way since the very beginning. That if an unbeliever dies, they go to a place called hell. And it's temporary. All unbelievers who have died to this date are there right now. And they are awaiting judgment. And then chapter 20 tells us there's a judgment. And they're brought before the Lord. And they're determined that they belonged in hell the first place. Because they were unbelievers. And they are cast into the lake of fire, which is permanent. Matter of fact, it even says that hell and death are thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 20, verse 14. That's a forever place, the lake of fire. Do you realize what forever is? It's kind of a hard concept to put our minds around, forever. That means there are no second chances. That means there are there's no reprieve. There's no rest. There's no refreshment. There's no break. There's no vacation. There's no appeal. There is no commuted sentences. There's no early release. The Bible does not teach that. There is no end. Some believe that the Lord will have mercy and allow them to be annihilated, vaporized, or something that makes them non-existent. The Bible does not teach that. Some believe that the Lord will redeem all the lost and even Satan himself will be reconciled to the Lord. The Bible does not teach that. Forever is forever. That's a stunning thing to try to think about. Revelation 20.10 states these words. Tormented day and night forever. Right? Forever. Now, that to me sounds like a great motivation for us to go out and share the gospel with the lost. Doesn't it? People have said that if somebody had a few minutes in hell, it would make them a believer. Let me remind you of a couple of things. Number one, the book of Revelation was not written to the lost. It was written to the church. It was written to the church. It was to tell us what is to come. The world doesn't care. I don't think this book was written to motivate the lost to be saved. It was to motivate the church to reach the lost. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Who knows more about what the Lord is going to do to the lost than the church? It's in our, it's in our Bible. 
and we read it. And knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So we don't go out and preach hell to frighten the lost to save, because hell cannot save you. We preach who? Jesus. Because he's the only one who can save. That's the message we have. And that's why Paul adds in his Corinthian passage, 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 14, he says, It's the love of Christ that controls us. And having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It also says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. That's why we preach Jesus. So, with all those things said, we go into verse number 1 of chapter 21. Chronologically, we've been brought up to this place. All the other things have been completed, if you think chronologically here. The rapture had been completed. The tribulation has been completed. The millennial period has been completed. The Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, and all believers have been judged, sentenced, committed to punishment, Completed. Now you're ready for the next event, right? Chapter 21. The fact of a new heaven and a new earth and the description of the new Jerusalem. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. I want you to notice, as I read that, you've been following the repetition of that word, new. New heaven, new earth, right? Verse 1. Verse 2, what's new? Jerusalem. Verse 5, what's new? All things. Little Greek word for you, kainos is the word. Kainos is the word for new. It's so interesting to me how scholars could take a simple little word and make an argument of it for years and years and years. And they have. They argue over this little word new. Say, why should it be so hard? Well, there's another Greek word for new. That makes it helpful, doesn't it? You got kainos and you got a word naos. Naos speaks of something that's fresh and young. And it even implies regenerated. Kainos refers to quality. Speaks of something new, fresh or unused. 
it does not appear to be speaking of something refurbished. Is there a difference between a computer that is new and unused and a computer that's refurbished? You know what? You're right. If you said yes, I googled it. And of course, that, no, that must be right. So I, I said, what is the difference between a refurbished computer and a new one? And they said this. Refurbished computers are older, used computer components that have undergone a thorough evaluation and restoration process to make the computer fully functional. And of course, that means you trust it now, right? Yes. Hmm. All right. You take the word kainos, little Greek word that's new. You pull up a guy named Thayer, who's a pretty good Greek uh, uh, teacher and explainer of words. He says it means new, as in recently made, fresh, unused, unworn. It, in regards to its substance, it's of a new kind. It's unprecedented. It's novel. It's uncommon. It's unheard of. Those are his words. There are those who do believe that the new heaven and the new earth that we are reading in verse number 21 is exactly the same heaven and the same earth that you are, well, you're standing on this earth right now. They say it's the same thing, only that it has been refurbished. Now, I don't know if they'd like that word, but that's the word I'm going to give it. You listen to this and tell me what you think. Commentator. God will not annihilate heaven and earth. You like the way that starts? God will not annihilate heaven and earth, and then create them anew out of nothing. Instead, he will transform them in a process that is the same as calling forth the lowly bodies of the saints to make them like the glorious bodies of our Lord, Philippians 3.21. Just as Jesus' body was transformed at his resurrection, so at the coming of the Lord, the bodies of his people will not be annihilated, but completely changed and glorified. The melting of the elements with fire occurs in preparation for a renewed earth. Then he quotes 2 Peter 3.10 and 2 Peter 3.12. If you listen carefully, you probably notice something. He chose to replace the word create with the word transform. God will not annihilate heaven and earth and then create them anew out of nothing. Instead, he will transform them. Now, his illustration was that of the Lord transforming our bodies to reflect his glorified bodies. And yes, that's to be expected. Scripture says that. We know that we will be changed, right? When the trumpet sounds, the Lord comes for us, we shall be changed. That's what Scripture says. That is true. That's a teaching of the rapture doctrine. Now, God did not use the word transform in Revelation 21, verse 1. Did he? Does God know how to use the word transform? Does God know the difference between changed and created? It's his word. Doesn't he say this is faithful and true? 
I think he could have used other words if he wanted to. But did he? No. Look at another thing while you're at it. What does it mean? Because he brought it up in his commentary. What does it mean in Second Peter 3 that the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up? Have you ever thought that through? The earth, as it says, will be destroyed. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Now, I'm not a scientist. Elements appear, from what I figured out, to be fundamental things in any kind of structure or being or whatever that's made. They're elementary parts of something. Now, I can't say we're talking about atoms here or molecules there or anything else, but one commentator put it down in terms I could understand. He said the elements, from a Greek word, refers to the four elements the universe is composed of, which is fire and air and earth and water. You've heard those before. Philosophers talk about it a lot, too. I only ask you this. If you take the air off the earth, and if you take the water off the earth, and if you take the dirt off the earth, what do you have left? doesn't seem like there's anything there now. Peter used the word destroyed. Destroyed as in to dissolve something. To loosen it, to untie it. And that certainly doesn't sound like remodeled. Isaiah said this. Isaiah 66 or 65. Back up. 65. You can follow these words right there in your text. Isaiah 65 verse 17. Behold, God is speaking. I create new heavens and a new earth. For the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Woo, that's pretty clear. You want to know where that word create has been seen before in the Old Testament? Genesis 1, 1. Same word. In the beginning, God created. Oh, let me test you even further. You guys are really good at this. What did he make the first earth and heaven out of? Nothing. Does Scripture ever say that? Well, yes, it does say that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But is God capable of making something out of nothing? Good. Did God refurbish the earth and the heavens in Genesis 1-1? No. So, Isaiah 66, verse 1 says, The Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. For my hands made all these things. Thus all these things have come into being, says the Lord. In Isaiah 66, verse 22. Just as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me. You know what? He's talking about a future event. He didn't say, which I did make. He said, I will make. The first heaven and earth already existed. So he's talking about something separate, isn't he? And he goes on to explain a little further than that. So he says, and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. 
And then listen to verse 24 of 66 in Isaiah. And they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for the worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. Yuck. I'm not even going to try that verse right now. That's too much. But isn't that interesting? He's talking about judgment for unbelievers, and he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth, all in the same context. Isn't that what we see in Revelation 21 and 20? Same thing. Same thing. Can I add another point? If I haven't convinced you yet of my main point, which is what? It's a new heaven and a new earth and not a refurbished one. Let me give you another point. In verse number 2 of chapter 21 of Revelation, you just told me something. You said this is a new what? Jerusalem. Is that the old Jerusalem refurbished? I don't think so. Why is it coming down from heaven? The old Jerusalem sits down here. He doesn't have to take it up there and fix it and bring it back down, does he? He doesn't refurbish the old Jerusalem. This is something brand new. This is something unused coming down from heaven. It's that same word, new. I think God knows how to use the word new. Matter of fact, when we start to describe the new Jerusalem, it is certainly not going to look like what you see today in the news over there in Israel. Vastly different. Size, for one, is different. Do you know the new Jerusalem that's going to be described here is 1,500 miles long in four different directions? 1,500 miles this way? That way, this way, and back. Sound big? Does that sound like a refurbished old one? Modified a little bit? I'm just making a point. I'm making a point. Because I've taken eight pages of my notes to make a point that God is able to do what man thinks is impossible. And so often people approach these texts and they step back and say, that can't be true. We've got to have a different answer for that one. Because they don't see that God can do it. So many people have tried to explain the existence of this present earth without God. And how well have they done? I just simply say, if the Bible says it, God said it. And God said he created it. In Hebrews 11, the verse that we made reference to a bit ago, it says we must believe by faith that God created the heavens and the earth because they were not there when he moved and opened his mouth and said, let there be light. You know what? I don't think you were there either, were you? Anybody going to admit to that? I don't think so. I wasn't there when God created. So why do we have to believe this by faith? Because God told us he was there. And he told us what had happened that day. There weren't scientists there that day either. Who do you want to believe? A man who wasn't there or a God who was there? Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. And that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The comment in the Geneva Bible says so. 
that the world which we see was not made from any matter that appeared or was before, but from nothing. That's a remarkable thing to understand. And yet our scientists would make us believe that we can get along without believing that. I found this quote of all things on Facebook the other day. I find so many interesting things on there. C.S. Lewis. You ready for this? Put on your thinking caps. Supposing there was no intelligent behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happened, for physical or chemical reasons, to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me, as a byproduct, a sensation I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you the map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments that they say leading, that leads to atheism. And therefore, I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Wow. Wow. Is, there any, is this any different than believing that God could create a new heaven and a new earth? Why should we argue about something that is easy in the capabilities of our God? Huh. You know what? This time, folks, we get to watch. Think of that. This time, we get to watch when he creates the new heaven and the new earth. All right. Where are we so far? We covered the first sentence. Almost. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, do you believe they're new? I hope so. I do. Not our start all over. I just tried to make that point. But there are other facts here, too. Other facts. Verse number two speaks of the existence of a new Jerusalem. We're going to get that tour next week. Verse nine to verse number 23. So I'm going to reserve verse number two for that point. Okay? I'm going to just set it aside. We'll come back to that. And we'll talk about the new Jerusalem. Fact number three is in verse three through five. Three through five. And it's upon this fact that I want to take a few minutes. I honestly would rather take a few hours. And just meditate and meditate and meditate on these verses. I heard a loud voice, verse 3 says, from the throne. It was saying, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. It will be a wonderful thing 
when tears are all gone. This will come about, and I want you to note this, at the time of a new heaven and a new earth. People sometimes will say, well, if I went to heaven right now, I'm no longer going to cry, right? Folks, I don't know what it's going to be like to stand there at the great white throne judgment and see people that you and I know be ushered into an eternity apart from Christ. But if that doesn't break your heart, I don't know what can. And I think there might be some tears shed. Jesus shed tears, and he was perfect. He stood over a tomb one day and cried, didn't he? He stood over a city and cried, too. And yet he was perfect. And I'm not sure that it ever says that the tears disappear if we leave today and go to heaven and we're up there with him. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think there are many, many things that we're going to witness that will break our hearts. But the day will come. And I promise it because God does. He will take away the tears. They'll be gone. Because everything's new now. He will take away the pain. Oh, I can't wait for that. How about you? No more pain. No more tears. No more deaths. No more mourning. These things will disappear when we see the new heaven and the new earth. They will be gone. Gone forever. We can't imagine that now, can we? But what a glorious thing that will be. They will be gone. All of those wonderful things, and yet there's something even better. Right in the middle of verse 3. He will dwell among them. His people. God himself will be among them. (laughs) Wow. Think of it. God living with you. He said, but pastor... Theologically, he lives in me. Yes. God living with you. You living with God. What would that be like? No more barriers. No more sin to break your fellowship. No more, well God, I wish I had more time for devotions this morning, but I've got to get to work. No more falling asleep in the middle of your prayer. I know you've never done that before. Nothing between you and your God. Nothing. Nothing. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they had something very sweet, didn't they? Adam in the garden. It mentions that there was a time when There was a sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Oh, what we messed up. What was messed up? Because that is stated after the fact that Adam and Eve had sinned and they took of that fruit. And all we could say is something like this. What if they had never done that? What if? What did we miss out on? Do you you think that maybe God might desire fellowship with you more than you want it with Him? Think about that. 
What have you ever sacrificed that you could go and spend time with him? And what did he sacrifice so that you can come and spend time with him? Is there a difference? He knew man could not come to him. So he came to man. He sent his son, right? Who took on the flesh of man. And he died in the stead of man. So that man by faith in him can come to God. And the day will be when God will be with man. He will be with his people. God himself. I love the way it reads this way in the New American Standard Version, verse 3. God himself, not a substitute, not a representative, not some assistant. God himself will be among them. Isn't that precious? How can you know this for sure? Verse 5. He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he says, Write these things, for these words are faithful. They are true. Do you believe them? I believe it. I read it, and I say, Thank you, Lord. I love reading the end of the book, don't you? They should put that at the end of every newscast on the TV. Wouldn't that be great? You know it's not going to happen. Someone laughed and said, sure. Um, what more can we say about this chapter? What more can we say? Well, we've got a lot more to say. But if the Lord should come for us this week, which would be great, we won't come back to this, okay? But if he, if he delays another week, we're going to come back. We're going to look at these verses, and we're going to take them as slowly as we need to. We've only done five so far, but think about these things. I want you to do one thing of homework, okay? I'll give you homework this week. Go back through chapter 21, 1 through 5, and just go through it nice and slowly. Think about what you just saw. Think about it again. Think about it again. Just take your time with it and look it all over. And if that praise service starts to break out in your heart, Know for sure that eventually it's going to go full bloom when you stand in his presence. What better place to start practicing than now? We've got a great God, and he wants to dwell with us. I love it. Heavenly Father, your word is so precious, so uplifting and encouraging. And we need that in a day like today. And we look out into our world and see so many things that are just not right. But you will make all things new. And we long for that day. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son. If it wasn't for that, there would be no hope for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can know you. And we can read of you. And we can long for you. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts to draw us to your throne. I know, Lord, that this day is coming. It's coming. And what a day it will be. Thank you for it. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. For our people here in this congregation, we belong to you and we love you. And this is what you have said to us today. 
and they may be at home right now, or as many of us are seated here this morning, we all have the same thing. We want to tell you, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. We give you the praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.